Magic Hour was recorded at the VCA on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Australia has the oldest unbroken storytelling tradition on earth, and that's something I'm humbled by and pay my deepest respects to. Welcome to Magic Hour, a podcast about screen culture. Makers, doers, thinkers, coming at you from the VCA, part of Melbourne University. My name's Ben Michael. I'm an academic, a screenwriter and a musician. And part of our mission statement at the Victorian College of the Arts is to share information with the public. The Film and TV School, over its 50-year career, it's the oldest film school in Australia, has produced a bunch of really amazing students who have gone on to incredible careers. So often we'll be talking to them. The other thing that happens at the VCA is we have filmmakers come by and talk to the students. We often record those and they're full of amazing insights into how film and TV gets made. So we'll be sharing them with you as well. Today, to kick off our first episode, we have documentary maker Brett Morgan. Brett dropped by the school in October this year. He was here to do publicity for his latest documentary, Moon Age Daydream, a very trippy, very beautiful film about David Bowie. Now, Brett's one of the biggest documentary makers in the world. He first came to my attention about 20 years ago with an incredible documentary called The Kids Days in the Picture about Robert Evans, one of the classic screen producers with a gigantic ego who made some of the best films in the late 60s, early 70s before drugs and madness took over. It's an amazing film. I then caught up with Brett next with a film called Montage of Heck, which was about the late singer Kurt Cobain. A sad but also beautiful documentary. And then a film called Jane, about Jane Goodall, the woman who went to Africa to study the chimpanzees. A really beautiful environmental documentary. And now we come to Moon Age Daydream. Not your standard biopic. This is like a wild collage of moments from David's life that give you a sense of kind of the themes of David's life as opposed to the blow-by-blow, year-by-year descriptions of what he's doing. It's a film that takes you away into another world and I really loved it. So I had a great time talking to Brett when he came by the school and I'm looking forward to sharing that with you now. As I'm sure all of us who make films understand, all biography is a form of autobiography, whether you're cognizant of it or not. Each of us in this room gets assigned to do David Bowie and each film is different. And why are they different? Because of what we bring to the table. Um, the, uh, the Jane was very much about my, something I struggled with, which was how do you be a good, a great parent and a great artist? How do you balance those two? And is that even remotely possible? Mm. Which I don't believe is. Yeah. I think you sort of pick one or the other despite in your intent. I will never, I, I, you know, when I get asked about what David thinks, or I'm like, I don't know David. I, I, I know Bowie. I've always made films on subjects that I was interested in, generally from my youth. I think one of the great joys I'm experiencing in my life is now, you know, when I was uh, 13, I was at the Serious Moonlight show, you know, in the back, you know, or, uh, you know, I, when I worked with the Stones, I didn't want to do that film. And my wife said, this one you do for the life experience, to spend a year with the Rolling Stones. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good a reason. reason. That's a good reason. And um, 
So the passion for the subject mm. exists. Otherwise, you know, I got approached to a Whitney Houston film and I was like, ah, oh, you know, I don't really know her music. Mm. I don't think I wanted to know her music mm. at the time. Not, not to be disrespectful, it's just not my gig. Let me, let me just give a quick listen and I'll, I'll call you back. I went to iTunes and like three minutes later, I was like, I'm, I, I, can't, I can't do a Whitney Houston film. Like, I, I, don't, I don't feel anything for the music. Yes. Someone just asked me today about Kate Bush. I'm like, she's awesome. I want to see that film. It's just not my, yeah. I don't know how many films I have left. I want to do stuff on that I'm kind of interested in. I, I'm interested in you mentioning uh, that there were stages that you were going through because I had a little revelation when I was watching, personal one, when I was watching Moon Age, where I was going, does this dude just find really famous people to make films about so that people will see them? And he's just making personal <laughs> stories himself about what he wants to tell the world. And it's like, if it was your version of the truth, I would go see it, but maybe not as many people as Bowie. And I was thinking, is this like the ultimate Trojan horse? Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't say it's a Trojan horse. I would say that if you're going to do a film on grassroots politics, so you're going to do a film about the ground war, you can choose to do a candidate who's totally anonymous, or you can choose to do the most controversial candidate that's campaigning right now. Both films allow you an opportunity to explore grassroots politics. One comes with a more built-in fan base. Now, at this stage of my career, that's not how I operate. No. I, I work off what I consider the Annie Leibovitz rule, which is that the subject matter is so elevated, it's become a prison where if someone said, hey, do you want to do a film on Stone Temple Pilots? I'm like, I can't because they're not of that same level of Bowie, Kurt, mm. Jane. And when you work on that level, those people want you to do their film. Yeah. It's this kind of, so, there've been a lot of films I've wanted to do and just couldn't because I've been trying to, in my own head, manage a brand that only I'm aware of. It seems like with all of the films you get given a, a wealth of information, like with, in, with the Kurt Cobain one, it was like home videos and extremely personal private material. So when we're talking about the themes that kind of emerge, this, and it sounds like there's something that you want to say, but then the, does the material start to talk to you and you start to filter within yourself what you want? To say or not say, or the what I want to say is an afterthought. That's right. not something I come into it with. Okay. It's so how do you find that, it then? So that that happens at some point? I become sort of cognizant of why I'm making these choices. Mm. Usually, what I do is um, I've done the same thing on every film. I read everything I can on a subject, and then I never read anything again. I never look at the books again. I read so I can contextualize the footage. I only want to work with primary sources. Mm. So once I've read everything, now I can look at footage without someone sitting here going, this is this and this is it, and I can get the backstory of it. Mm. I try to watch footage totally open-minded. Now this is, we know, impossible. I have my history, you have your history, but as much as possible, I did not walk into Montage of Heck going, I'm making a film about shame. Mm. I didn't go into Bowie thinking I'm making a film that's a guide to how to lead a fulfilled and successful life in the 21st century. I, mean, I had no idea that Bowie was chaos and fragmentation. I didn't know any, I, I just was like, I'm doing an immersive Bowie film. Mm. And it's going to be an IMAX, so I want to kind of see what can be woven together using the highest graded elements, mm. the 35 and 16 predominantly, and then I sort of caved in and started going a little lower than that. Mm. So I really do try to go and clean and then figure out what the material, what opportunities the material can provide. Because it seems like there were certain sequences in the footage that 
Rudy spoke to you, like that amazing footage of him just wandering around that Asian city that looks, I don't know what it was shot on, because I'm just a storyteller. I'm a writer, I'm not a technical person, but it looks so beautiful. And then it, it felt like you saw that and went, oh my God, because that, that ends up becoming an incredibly important I, well, it, that was weaved through the whole thing. I, that I can take you back to 2007. When I pitched David in 2007, I pitched him a, a, a movie that was going to be a triptych. And um, very quickly, there were three stories that were going to be um, folded into one. This is a meeting with David in a very small room. What's uh, that like? <laughs> it was uh, fluorescent lighting. And I mean, it was like a room that could hold four people. And I was like, okay, here's the pitch. Um, three triptych, three three films within the film. The first film, you never did anything after Ziggy. You've been stuck in a prison since then. We find you present day Berlin. You've been playing the same fucking album your whole life. And uh, this bartender feels bad for you. So he lets you play on Monday nights till at two in the morning to some winos and whatever. And, um, and this is what happens if you don't evolve. And the second section, the second sequence, the second movie within the movie was um, David and I go to Southeast Asia and we do a press conference at the airport in Tokyo where we show a, we, we announce a documentary, a totally trad doc, talking head documentary that no one would, that Bowie wouldn't want to be a part of. And we show a five-minute clip that we make and we show to like live theater, to a press who think that this is a real film and ask all sorts of salacious questions that we can throw into the trailer. And then David walks around Southeast Asia and Japan and China and stumbles into Chinese opera or Kabuki theater and each show is like a reflection of his life, kind of like Mishima. And then the third section was David traveling around the... Nepal on an elephant with a, a generator and a 16 projector showing the last indigenous people on earth Ziggy Stardust movies. And um, I don't know how I got into that. <laughs> Why didn't you make it? Uh, he wasn't, he was, he was in semi retirement, so it was a little too. Um, why did I tell that story? It was, it was a little too demanding of him at the time. Right. Yeah. I, I, it was the question about certain. Because obviously, oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah. So, so weirdly enough, in my mind, I before I knew anything, I wanted to make a film where David wanders around Southeast Asia. <laughs> it's been done. Then I discover <laughs> these guys know that there's kind of a very forgettable movie in the Bowie canon called Ricochet, which had only been released on VHS in 1984. There was a I think it was on the Glass Spider DVD in 2002, and that master was from a three-quarter master. It looks like absolute shit. At the time that I landed this film in 2016, it did not exist on YouTube. It didn't exist anywhere. Mm. You couldn't see it anywhere. And I somehow heard about it, and my archivist, and then I called the estate, and I said, I, I, need, I need this film, Ricochet. And the executive was like, Ricochet? <laughs> Why in the world do you want Ricochet? And he's like, that's the biggest piece of shit. And I go, no, you don't understand. I have to have it. It's David, it's the metaphor I need for my film, A Stranger in a Strange Land. And uh, eventually my archivist, God bless her, found the 16 millimeter negative mislabeled in a vault in London, nothing to do with Bowie, like Whoa. in some random vault. And then I got a call. So I use a lot of it. 
be ready for it. Because I didn't think anyone had seen it. I was like, this is, I'm going to take this. And then, and then in January this year, it's Bowie's 75th anniversary. Uh, this is where you, you can't repeat this. And they, uh, <laughs> they're not promising. And the estate's like, so we're going to roll out a bunch of stuff that we haven't, uh, you know, for this year. I go, well, you're putting ricochet in right now? I go, can you wait a year? I was like, please. I would not have used so much of it if it was accessible. So let's just wait a minute. It's funny that that comes from a, a apparently shit film because the, the way you've recontextualized it, it made me think that this was an amazing, you know. It's not a shit film. It's just kind of like the reason the film exists is David wanted to go. He was on the Cirrus Moonlight tour and he didn't want to go home. He had nowhere to go. And so he's like, let's go to Southeast Asia and we can use the money from the tour. We can make a documentary and the shows will pay for the documentary. I love the quote that starts off the film. Would you be able to tell the, the audience? Uh, I'll, I'll gobble it. I'm going to too. It's, it's uh, really beautiful and it seems like a profound thing that I think a lot of us are feeling at the moment. At the end of the 19th century, Frederick Nietzsche declared that God was dead and the man had killed him. It's all about like, if there is no God, who are we to put our faith in? You know, it's, and the reason it was placed there, it was placed there at the very end of, the, of my production process because genre is something we take for granted. Genres existed for, I don't know, did the Greeks create it? When, when, I mean, it's been around forever, right? The Greeks were smart enough to go comedy, tragedy, because if you go to a tragedy thinking you're, it's a comedy, you're fucking out the door in two minutes. You're like, this isn't funny. Where's the jokes? If you go to see Bowie thinking you're going to see, as you should, you all, we all see films. They're called Bowie. It's a documentary. This is not that. So what happens if you go and expect that? You're like, where's the film? You're disappointed. Mm. So I had to create a covenant. This is, this is like not something most of us have to deal with as filmmakers because mm. we're not creating new genres. Mm. We work within genre. But if you are creating a new genre, which doesn't happen that often, you have to set, create the rules and create a covenant with the audience so they understand how to interpret this. Mm. Well, if you open your if you showed up thinking you were seeing a documentary, a biographical documentary about David Bowie, and the first quote is, at the end of the 19th century, Frederick Nietzsche said, God is dead. You kind of get an indication <laughs> that there's probably not a scene where it's like, the first time I heard my song on the radio. <laughs> so uh, these are everything in the first five minutes of that mm. film was very intentionally designed to try to put a guard over my Achilles heel. Thinking of like a... Uh, Eric Norman's book, who Jung can be hard to kind of get your head around, but he kind of talked about the mythological stages of humans, and the film seems to do that, where it has the the hubris of youth and the kind of I can do anything, and then it transitions really nicely into the um, just as a side issue. I love that you don't go into the drugs; you just have to have two or three clips of him on TV to go. You're very close to death right now, as signposts between that initial stage before he goes off to Germany. That's maybe that's me. I thought that. I went into. I, you know, it's weird. <laughs> like I, I just like if you if you don't say I did coke, mm. that I, like I was like, why? it's so obvious. Yeah, yeah. Like it seems like a waste it's, of. But I've I've read like a review where someone's like. He whitewashes, oh my God. you know, his behavior. I'm like, really? So, but then, so then it turns into that in, amazing fertile Berlin experimental phase, yeah. uh, which is my personal favorite of oh, years. Oh, yeah. 
Um, and then I loved, because I came of, we're the same age, I came of age in the 80s with Bo, which to me was his least interesting period. I, I was into more crazier shit than that, but all the people, as in this T-shirt that I loved, went on and on about him. So I went back to that and went, okay, this is why people are obsessed with him. But I, I adored how Bowie really openly just said, yeah, you can't keep on reinventing the wheel and being incredibly experimental. At some point, I just wanted to give people what they wanted and to put on a great show. And it recontextualized this period that I wasn't crazy about in a really beautiful, honest kind of way. Yeah, it was one of the most illuminating interviews that I came across was an interview you did with Lisa Robinson. Lisa Robinson was a huge music writer in the 70s and music editor for Vanity Fair. And um, David really, they were friends. And um, there was a point where she says, before that stands came out, she, you know, you got this album coming out. And he talks about how he wanted to go into the mainstream. Like he wanted to send out a more positive message. Now, I had always interpreted that period as sort of an accident, if you will. Like, oh, well, that album took off. For Bowie, it was like a blue period. It was like, it was just another movement. Mm. Like, let's try this, let's try this, let's try stardom, pop stardom. Now, what's crazy about that is he's 15 years into his career, <laughs> right? You don't get to suddenly, I don't get to say, oh, wow, next year I'm going to be uh, the biggest filmmaker on earth <laughs> because I want to experience what Jordan Peele gets to experience. Like, that's, that's, not, that's not something that's going to happen. You're like, I, I could try, but I, I can assure all of us it's not happening. Uh, so that's just remarkable. It, I just, it was a really refreshing, beautiful way of looking at it. So at what point did you kind of realise that there'd be those four stages? Because it felt like initial Berlin 80s and then what he made it of it all as he aged. When did that kind of come to you? I think as I was going through the material, I broke everything down. I was trying to write the script and I was trying, and I established that the through line was transience, chaos and fragmentation and that those can be interpreted loosely and there can be, there can be different strands of that. So gender fluidity can kind of fit in there and and um, trans travel, being on the road, can sort of fit in there. And, and so then it became these, they sort of fit nicely into these periods. So, I mean, I, I think as, as we're film students and you're dealing with a subject as, uh, as, as, as vast as Bowie, um, it's really important to pick your lane. Sorkin is probably pretty good at that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Not so good at commenting on modern society, but no, I mean, no, no, it's, can't handle that. But I, yeah, I do think he's. I think that there's, you know, the, the way he approached Jobs was 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 rather clever. The the three act structure and anyway. For you as a filmmaker, it felt like that you've been building to this type of documentary until this point, where each one of them had, which I really loved. Each one of your documentaries would always take you into very psychedelic, very visual, immersive kind of moments. But then we'd get back to the documentary. There was the, there were like beautiful sequences within it. Whereas it felt like with this one, you were like, I'm just going to let this thing rip from the word go. Uh, is that what happened? Yeah, a, I mean, I like montage. Yeah. I think montage is the most pure form of, of, of cinema. It's 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 the one thing. I suppose there's you can say that montage has is has a common is like a haiku. But it's so specific to films, you know. So there's there, the idea of fragmentation in other medias exists, but the when with cinema you get sound and picture, and so that creates something rather unique. And I find, ever since I saw Man with a Movie Camera, 
when I was uh, younger, just love montage and music and telling stories. I would never do a music video. I don't know how to do music videos. I have tried to create a career in which my films offer the viewer a uniquely cinematic experience of the subject, that which they cannot find in a book or an article or in another medium. Mm. So they are never designed to be definitive. They're always meant to be something that um, complements or supports uh, existing other works or not that I'm saying, Jane, go look at this. It's just, uh, you know, I think that they, um, yeah, that's, a, that's kind of the, the ticket with them is to make films that, um, that are not about the subject, but that become the subject mm. and allow us. And so montage is just pure. Mm. And Moon Age is m montage. That is the story. The form is the story. Part of that immersion is the sound, which is the secret weapon of filmmaking. Yeah, because we, in the audience. we see <laughs> films, right? Yeah. That's why people say it. They're always like, hey, have you seen that? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, the sound's so important. Can you tell us about how you sound mix? Because the visual's yeah. a little more obvious. Can you talk to me about sound and what it means? Yeah, so I was very blessed on this film to work with. Uh, I mean, the greatest thing about filmmaking is, uh, is getting to work with your heroes, you know, if you have an opportunity. Um, first movie, Kids Season Picked Our Heart, John Bailey, to shoot it. I wrote a paper in 11th grade called The Films of John Bailey. Oh, my God. Um, and so the first chance I had to hire a professional DP, even though we didn't have the money, I got Bailey to do it. And, uh, and so Paul Massey, who's the sound mixer on the film, and um, John Warhurst and Nina Hartstone, who were the sound designers, uh, they had all just won the Oscar for Bohemian Rhapsody. Paul's an 11-time nominee. I don't really care much for the Oscar, so that doesn't mean much. But what matters more is he's God with sound. And... I can throw ideas out. Paul knows how those will play out in a cinema that we're not controlling. Mm. And that is where the danger zone lies when you start working with the surrounds. Because you, you know, if a theater is this, it's going to sound like one thing. If we have a long theater, it's going to sound totally different. And so if left to my own, I'd probably just mix for the room I'm in. Yes. Paul's protecting us for every space. Uh, the, 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 again, the movie was intended to be, um, to be um, you know, like a, um, a laserium, a planetarium, uh, you know, sort of thing. So from the get-go, it was to wrap the sound around the, the viewer. But uh, music is, is two channels, you know, and for a reason. And so when you start to break that apart, it, it, can get, it gets wobbly. It gets very, very dangerous, and I've had some really miserable experiences watching the film in rooms that where it just fell apart because mm -hmm. the room was too wide, and so our stuff where we're taking sounds like this, we were in, uh, we were in the biggest stage of Fox when we mix, but even the biggest stage of Fox is nowhere near a 2,300 seat a room. Yeah. When you go to a 2,300 seat room with um, 150 seats across, if you're sitting in the middle, you can't hear the panning. Mm. from one side to the next. So Paul gets all that mm. and kept us in control. And it was a lot of tug of war and pushing and me just, I would mix, I'm not joking, I'm not trying to be funny. If the screen was there, I would do most of the mixing like this. And it wasn't because I wanted to monitor the back speakers. It was because I wanted to separate what I was seeing from what I was hearing. Right because you add extra 
weight to it when you're seeing it. So I wanted balance. So I wanted to know, okay, if I can't see that, is it happening in equal volumes? Paul does drama. So Paul came into the process going, it's all there. And I go, no, in your universe, it's always there. Because mm. the action's always there. I don't have any geography in this film. There's no front, center, back, north, up, down, whatever. So we need to just go in a circle. Yeah. And we had to find a middle ground. Yes. Like what I wanted is not realistic. And what Paul was, <laughs> what Paul was, was suggesting wasn't what I wanted. Yes. And, you know, there were, there were some, it got very intense. Mm. And I was like, you know what, Paul? I got to go screen the film for the next 10 years of my life. I want it the way I want it to sound. <laughs> And we got in this whole thing, and then Paul's like, I'm very sorry. I was, it was very, I was like, no, Paul, I'm very sorry. I was like, you know, as Bob Evans says, when everyone gets along, invariably the work comes out underwhelming. And Moon Age is really Paul and I meeting almost in the middle. Where it's too loud is definitely me. Um, <laughs> and he still, I think, is like a... I mean, that's that beautiful thing with filmmaking where it's one plus one equals three, where there's yeah. no way that you could have created that thing without that tension and pressure with two people who really give a shit about yeah. what they're doing. Look, I, I, I don't want to just have my voice on this thing. Is, does anyone want to, would anyone like to ask a question? Yes, up the back there. What did you have to prepare in order to make an IMAX movie? So she's a filmmaker, not a writer. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's like anything else. You know, you need to know the equipment. You need to know what the options are, the opportunities are to really work and exploit that medium. And there was a lot of testing. Um, Paul, fortunately, this was the best hidden gift of having Paul. IMAX loves Paul. So Paul can get access to that theater whenever he wants in, in Playa del Rey, their headquarters. We would go constantly back from the Fox mixing stage to IMAX to reference our mixes. And we got to a point where we would go to IMAX to take notes and then return to Fox to execute the notes because the room at Fox, we felt, was about 3 dB louder than IMAX because it was smaller and more contained. So even though it was registering on the same number, it just, we couldn't even take it. So we, we turned the whole room down and then made notes based, it was like blind, but this, we were just constantly going back and forth, back and forth, checking things out. Visually, um, if you've been to a color correct, if you've color corrected professionally, almost every shot in Moon Age Daydream has probably like a minimum of five power windows, as many as 12 or 15. Our color house basically said at the end of the day, this should never have been brought to color. This was a visual effects job. Like, you don't color, you don't put 15 power windows on every shot. Um, and we, we fried some servers. Like, we definitely fried, I mean, literally fried servers. Like, it was uh, Company 3, which is the biggest color house in the world, said this was, this took up more space than any project they've ever had. Um, we were going crazy with windows because every grain matters. Every frame matters. And so, because we were going to IMAX, I knew that I had to get in there and take the, reduce the noise wherever possible. The, the, this type of media does not get played in IMAX rooms. And so oftentimes what that would mean 
is going, okay, the audience is really only looking at David. This other part to the left here, let's put a window over there. Let's put a soft focus on that so we don't have to see the nastiness. But over on the top right corner, let's do, it's every, like every part of the frame was handled kind of uniquely, differently, massaged, orientated um, to really reduce the grain structure. So I like grain, but you know, in IMAX it could get really ugly really fast. You asked about IMAX. Early on I spent a lot of time over there looking at different footage and, sh and, and stuff. And I saw a test from the Michael Jackson film, This Is It. It was like a three minute piece and I turned to the IMAX folks when and over. I was like, was this a post-conversion or did the director finish it in IMAX? And they were like, no, it was a post-conversion. I was like, I could tell. And, and I was like, why would he have left those two shots in there? And what it was, was the film was shot, I think with consumer 24P HD cameras, like the consumer type. But then there were a couple people who had iPhones. And my guess is in the Avid offline, that was fine. And the blend of those was fine, but you got into IMAX and it's not worth it. What, that shot's only two seconds and it takes me totally out of the experience. Even though that other footage, is, they're not IMAX cameras, I'm, that's what I've bought into. And so you can't throw something on there that is that so nasty that it pulls me out. And, and if you're the filmmaker, what he, the filmmaker should have done if they were working with IMAX is go to IMAX, see what that shot looks like, go back to the edit room, remove the shot, it's not worth it. There is a sequence you're gonna see if you go see the IMAX version of this. Last thing I did technically was I took, let the, there's a song, Let's Dance. I, I say that like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He wrote this song. There's a song you might have heard of called Let's Dance. Um, and that sequence um, looks gorgeous in Atmos. It looks, I could, I've seen it at the Palais, it's gorgeous. When I got to IMAX, I was like, it's just too stressed out. We were on the edge and I feel like it's pushed as far. So I went back and I readjusted the aspect ratio to 4.3 because everything else I was going 69 on. And that is specific to IMAX. It doesn't exist in any other format. And that was me going back to those original tests and going, I am playing this here because it, I don't want this to be about shitty looking media. It's supposed to be sublime, this performance. And it's not, I'm, I'm stressed out. So I'm just going to shrink it a little bit for just this, this venue. Fantastic. Uh, the idea of fighting for every second of your film is really important. Well, Monty Python wrote a song about it. <laughs> every grain is sacred. <laughs> every grain is joy. I think you've been pulled out with a hook now. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you all Brett, so much. Brett, it's been a real yeah, pleasure. Thank you. A real, real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Very nice time. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. What a human being. Okay, thank you so much for listening. If you get a chance, please watch Moon Age Daydream. Find it wherever you can. It's still playing at some cinemas. I'm sure it's going to be online somewhere. It's definitely worth seeing. We'll see you next week with more adventures in Screenland.